Well, welcome everybody. This is Apologia Center. My name is Arthur. As it, as you can see on your screen, I have a guest with me, and uh, I've I've been anticipating this. I think it's going to be fun and exciting, and I think a lot of people are interested in in this subject, generally speaking. Um, so, without taking too much of our time, as it is limited, I want to introduce uh, Dr. Lee Irons or Charles Lee Irons. Uh, we call him Lee. Uh, welcome. Thanks for thanks for joining me today. Hey, welcome. It's great to be here, Arthur. I'm enjoying our getting to know you and talking about the issue of creation. Yeah, you know, it was interesting because we had spoken in November and uh, I said, well, yeah. I want to have you on because we want to talk about salvation and justification and sanctification. Some of your more recently uh, kind of scholarly work on the subject. And then um, as I was reading this book, Preparing to Teach uh, My Armenia Friends, I realized it says Lee Irons. And I was like, wait, can this be the same Lee Irons, right? And so I looked it up and I was like, wait, it is. And I had no idea that you had done work uh, in this area. I read this in Bible College, great book. It's in the, the, the link to Amazon uh, is in the description box. You guys can go purchase it. Uh, the fun thing about this book, and I don't know whether it was fun writing it like that, but it was fun reading it, is that it's a debate. You guys go present your cases and then you go back and forth criticizing other folks. Uh, how, how is it like writing a written debate, I guess? Yeah, it's fun. Uh, it was it was a good it was a good exercise. I enjoyed uh, the interaction, especially with Hugh Ross and uh, the other. In other words, the other non literal, non young earth view uh, the young earth guys in that debate were a little bit feisty, so wasn't as enjoyable talking to them, but <laughs> notice that <laughs> reading it. <laughs> yeah. So you'll see in there as you read the book that they get a little bit uh, uh, polemical, if you will. But, um, you know, we did the best we could and it, I thought it was helpful to uh, engage back and forth. But you're right. It is kind of interesting doing a debate in a written format where you it takes several months. You know, you write your side, you send the documents out, you read the others, you respond and so on. So it's kind of a neat process. I enjoyed it. Yeah, I always enjoy reading these like three views and four views books that are um, like I have a book on God and Time uh, that was oh, yeah. edited by Greg Ganzel, and it's written in a very similar format to this. Right. And they're great introductory books because, you know, instead of reading three, four books or five books, it's yeah. cool to just read one and go, OK, here's what I resonate towards. Here's what I like to go pursue, study yeah. more in. And, uh, you know, some of these ones I, I don't resonate with. Yeah, so Zondervan has the Counterpoint series, and uh, IVP has one. So yeah, they're all good. Yeah. Um, so <clears throat> let's just go through some some educational stuff. You got your PhD at Fuller Theological Seminary. I did. Uh, what did you do your dissertation on? It was on the topic of the righteousness of God in Paul. Uh, Paul uses that uh, phrase in Romans and also in Philippians and Second Corinthians. Um, and so I was interpreting, asking the question, what does that phrase, the righteousness of God, refer to? And I was dealing with um, N.T. Wright's interpretation uh, that it refers to God's covenant faithfulness. So I basically did a word study to ask, is that meaning possible? And so I did a lot of work in the Old Testament and the Jewish uh, Second Temple literature and concluded that, no, it doesn't really mean that. Uh, so... 
Yeah, it's basically okay. a defense of the traditional Protestant view that it refers to the righteousness that comes from God as a gift. Mm. And uh, is has that been published? Is that uh, can can people purchase that? Yes, it's been published uh, by Moore Seebeck, uh, but it's one of those European publishers that is really only printing, you know, 300 copies for libraries. So good luck trying to find a copy. That's so if you're going to get it, you're probably going to cough up like 150 bucks <laughs> yeah. for it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, um, but if you go to BookFinder, you can sometimes find good deals on BookFinder. Okay. So uh, We'll try to put uh, links uh, to that. You also have your website. Yeah. Um, tell us about your website and the work you do. Yeah, I have a website called the Upper Register, upper-register.com with papers and lectures and so on. Just on a variety of topics, mostly related to covenant theology. Uh, I have some things there that relate to creation. Um, I also have uh, um, quite a few uh, MP3s of lectures I've given, talks I've given, Sunday school recordings and things like that that are available there. Cool. And you also have a YouTube channel. Yes, my YouTube channel uh, is called Upper Register, but it's under my name, Charles Lee Irons. It's focused more narrowly on Reformed biblical theology in the tradition of Gerhardus Voss. Okay. And uh, again, we'll have all the links to that in the description box, uh, and you can just you just go there. Okay. So before we jump into the subject at hand, uh, I always ask my guests what their educational kind of journey was like um and and some advice as to you know where people are you know some people might be going into a bachelor some people might want to pursue a master's or an mdiv or or a phd and what was it like for you and life changes and some advice you would give and uh, you you went to school in different locations uh, uh that's my assumption like you moved around mm -hmm. correct <clears throat> Uh, yeah, a little bit. Okay. So I went to my undergrad was at UCLA, uh, did an undergrad there in Greek, classical Greek. And then I went to seminary soon after that, uh, Westminster Seminary, California. So that was the one move going down to Escondido hmm. from LA down to basically northern San Diego. Um, then came back to LA and didn't do any schooling for a while. But then I did go back to school, went back to Fuller uh, for my PhD later. Um, yeah, it's tough. I mean, especially as life goes on and you have a family and kids and things like that, it's hard to juggle all that. Uh, for me, um, I was fortunate to be able to go to a school that was near where I live, so I didn't have to move. I'm talking about the PhD yes. now. Um, and... Uh, that was a blessing. And I was also able to keep my job. So, um, but it was hard juggling all that, you know, being yeah. involved in ministry and then having a job and a family and all that. So it's not well, easy. How, how many years was the gap between seminary and your PhD work? Um, it was about 10 years. Uh -huh. Okay. So I still have yeah. hope. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, okay, so that that's very interesting because in some circles you're told, hey, you do your graduate work, go into a PhD because some schools are going to look at that and say, what did you do in between these, you know, the 10 years? And, um, yeah. But even yeah, also like that. it also like maybe settles you a bit where you're like, oh, man, I don't know if I want to pursue like scholarly yeah. sort of stuff. 
Um, how did you kind of get back into the rhythm, or did you always write? Yeah, you have to. Time? No, you have to get back into the rhythm. Um, so you have to do a lot of studying. Basically, just read, just read, read, read. In whatever area it is you're interested in doing your PhD in, you just got to read and know all the authors and all the issues. Not everything exhaustively, but you just have to like kind of have some familiarity with what's going on in the discussion of whatever area you're looking at. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then based on that, you can get an idea of what your topic might be and you could, you know, reach out to a potential PhD advisor and say, hey, I'm interested in this particular topic. I've read some of your stuff on it. You know, I think we could possibly work together and then see, see what he says. So that's okay. that's how I did it. Yeah. OK, so let's, let's jump into uh, into the subject. And I want to read a, actually the little introductory paragraph to the framework view. Uh, that you wrote with Meredith Klein. And it says this. It says, The framework interpretation strives to understand the text of Genesis 1-1 to 2-3 on its own terms, independently of any question that may arise from the empirical study of origins. In contrast to the other two positions represented in this book, the framework interpretation recognizes the exegetical implications of the unique literary and theological character of this inspired record of the history of creation. The Holy Spirit has given us an inerrant historical account of the creation of the world, but that account has been shaped not by concern to satisfy our curiosity regarding sequence or chronology, but by predominantly theological and literary concerns. That's a really nice, well put introductory paragraph um folks seem to me uh, when in, in this discussion they draw lines maybe a bit too hard right um like if you're young earth you can't be this if you're old earth you can't believe in this um in my opinion it seems to me that you can you can have a combination of a number of things um so let me ask you a personal question and then we'll jump to whether that's necessary or not. Uh, and somebody's asked this in the comments. Uh, do you hold to um, a young earth, you know, creation? Like is, is God's creation more recent or is it older than what it appears? And is that even necessary to have a conversation about when it comes to talking about the framework theory? Right. So my own personal position is that I am persuaded by the scientific evidence for an old earth and an old, old universe. So I think that, um, that that evidence is convincing to me. And I think that I can harmonize that with what scripture teaches, but the framework interpretation itself doesn't necessarily dictate your view on the age of the earth. So you could hold to a framework interpretation in terms of understanding the literary nature of the text and seeing how the three, um, the first three days and the second three days, we're going to talk about that in a minute, but we could see there's a, a literary structure there and how those three um, days or how those two triads of days relate mm -hmm. um, in a literary way. You could hold to that with and still combine that with a young earth view if you're persuaded by that. Okay. Um, so. So we're more talking about the literature here of the yeah. biblical text rather yeah. than the scientific data that we're going to get uh, extra biblically. Right. Okay. So what's the author intending? In this case, let's say it's, uh, Moses is writing this and what is his intention? Uh, what does he want to communicate? So 
tell us what a what a breakdown of the framework view is. Yeah, so simply put, uh, the framework view is called that because the framework interpretation sees the days of creation as a literary framework. Mm -hmm. So that the, the picture that is being painted there in the text is of God um, going about his work for six days and resting on the seventh. And that picture is understood as a literary framework uh, for uh, narrating the eight creative fiats. There's eight fiats where God says, let there be and there was, let there be and there was. There's mm -hmm. eight of those um, over a period of six days. So that means that days one and two uh, have one fiat each. Then day three has two fiats. Uh, days four and five have one fiat each. And then day six has two fiats. That's why you end up with eight. So um, the, the fiats are historical events that are being narrated, but they're being narrated in a non-sequential order using this framework of six days plus one day of rest as the, as the structure, as the literary frame to organize those eight creative fiats. Hmm. So that's why it's called the framework view. Um, and uh, if you have that uh, PDF that I sent you, yeah. if you're able to show that, that would be great because you it's, can see, it's is up it up on, there now? Yeah. Okay, yeah. Mm -hmm. You can see the structure. You can see the parallels between days one and four, two and five, and three and six. Um, the parallels are pretty obvious if you just look at what is going on in each of those days. So in day one, you have the distinction between the light and the darkness, and the, day, the light is called day and the darkness is called night. But then on day four, which is clearly parallel to that, you have the creation of the luminaries that govern those two things. So the the, the great light, which is the sun, to govern the day, and the lesser light, the moon, to govern the night. And so uh, that suggests then that what's going on in the text is um, that there's some kind of parallelism between these two triads, days one through three and days four through six, that is intentionally creating a literary device or a literary framework for organizing the creation account rather than simply a sequential, you know, this happened and then this happened and this happened. Hmm. Uh, in fact, it's very interesting too. If you look at the text, day four actually says that the purpose for the creation of the luminaries was to separate uh, the light from the darkness, which is the exact same thing that it says happened on day one. On day one, it says that God separated the light from the darkness. So that really makes you wonder are these two separate events or are they the same event being looked at from two different perspectives yeah and it seems to me that specifically on this issue this view reconciles a, a conversation that young and older creationists are having kind of maybe maybe even talking past each other where um, they got to bring an extra i guess material from the outside uh, to justify it so young earth creationists have an issue with saying, well, how can you have light on day one, but the luminaries are created on four, would say, well, Christ is the light, and they see that in Revelation, they bring that into the text, uh, where the older creationists will say, well, no, no, the light is there, what day four is talking about is kind of it being uh, revealed, you know, uh, to, to the cloud cover, yeah, the part, cloud is covering, and the yeah. light comes down. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and it's kind of like, oh, okay, so that's not in the text. I, both of those views do not deal right. with what's actually in the text. They got to bring outside material into the text. 
Right. Or this one is saying, hey, look, it's in the text. These two things right. are parallel. And not only are these two things parallel, but so are the rest. Would you, Lee, would you say that these, there's a filling that's kind of taking place? Mm-hmm. Okay, so the, explain that to us a little bit. Yeah, so I think that the first three days are primarily focused on, um, as the PDF shows, showing the creation kingdoms, that is the realms, right? Like on day two, you have the the dry land from the water. And then on day three, um, I'm sorry, that was day three. But you see these realms. And then on, then in the second triad, days uh, four through six, you see sort of the filling or the more accurately even than that would be the establishment of the creation kings or the creator kings that rule over those realms. So like the luminaries on day four rule over the darkness and the light and the, the birds and the fish on day five rule over the waters above from the waters below, uh, the waters above just being, you know, like the atmosphere basically. Mm -hmm. And then, um, the, uh, that the land animals and man rule over, uh, the dry ground. And specifically there's a connection with the vegetation there, which I think is significant theologically because it sets up for Genesis chapter two, which is about the, uh, in reformed theology, we hold that, uh, Genesis two is talking about the covenant of works. Um, maybe not all of your audience holds mm. to that system of theology, but I think the covenant of works is in the text that God made a covenant with Adam in the garden, uh, in which he said, you shall not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil for in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And so there's something very important about that tree vegetation, right? And man is to exercise some kind of lordship over that tree. And we'll also find out as we keep reading, he's going to exercise lordship or supposed to exercise lordship over the serpent. But that happened at the tree. That confrontation mm. happened at the tree. So I think that the text in Genesis 1 is setting us up for Genesis 2 by establishing the close connection between man and vegetation. Vegetation was um, uh, emphasized there in that uh, that second or that third uh, pair of days. days uh, okay. uh, it seems that that would six. resonate yeah. with that would resonate with Psalm 8. Yeah. Um, you know, what is man that you have uh, made him a little lower than mm -hmm. angels or heavenly beings? Uh, and then you've given him authority over, right? Like to rule exactly. over. So there, there's exactly. this authority kingship yeah. kind of stuff going on. Yeah. So the, the other rulers that are in the text besides man, like the fish and the birds or the luminaries, they are also, they also have some degree of authority and rulership over their respective realms. But man on day six is the pinnacle. Man is the, obviously God is the greatest ruler, but under God, man is the second highest. He's like the second in command. He's the vice regent under God who exercises God's authority over the rest of creation. And so hmm. that's why day six climaxes in the creation of man who's made an image of God. And it explicitly says there in the text to have dominion over creation and yeah. to subdue and the there's, earth. And and it, it, the so, interesting thing is there's, yeah. no par there's no parallel with Yahweh. <laughs> He just he just sits there, um, but there is a parallel in this sense that uh, what happens on the seventh day, on the seventh day, it doesn't explicitly say this, but it's kind of implied that God Himself is revealed on the seventh day as the ultimate ruler, and yeah. He is resting. What does that mean for God to rest? Is God tired and He needs to take a break? No, it's saying that God is resting in the sense of being like the King seated upon His throne, enthroned over all of creation. And looking at it all and saying, behold, it's very good. So, uh, and then that idea of 
Sabbath rest is picked up later on in the Bible. You see it, for example, in Psalm 132. There's a key passage in Psalm 132 that uh, talks about the Sabbath uh, directly in connection with uh, God's enthronement. So uh, Psalm 132... Um, so it says in verse 8, Arise, O Lord, to your resting place, you and the ark of your strength. Hmm. Uh, it says in verse 13, The Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his habitation. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. Uh, so God's God is um, enthroned in the creation narrative as the sovereign king over all of creation with man in uh the vice regent position under God to exercise God's dominion over creation as his, uh, as his servant, as his vassal under God, the great suzerain. Okay. Um, so here's very, something, I guess that just popped out to me is that, uh, it says here, I will set a sit enthroned for I've desired it. There is yeah. this view that the temple, uh, or the portion of the temple, the Holy of Holies, is God's, uh, I mean, mercy seat, right? His, um, Isaiah sees his robe, mm -hmm. the train of his yeah. robe come in, into the temple, uh, where it's, I mean, I've read scholars say it's kind of like his footstool. It's kind of like his, his presence is there clearly in the Holy of Holies, uh, but he's reigning somehow, mm -hmm. maybe not from there, but there's a presence kind of special thing that's going on there that's different. Mm -hmm. Now, with that in mind, if this is the, what that text is saying, and then there has been scholars who've said that Genesis, the creation account, looks like a temple. The garden looks like a temple. Mm -hmm. um, do do these things somehow resonate uh, with each other, or are they kind of mutually exclusive from one another? No, absolutely. Uh, the garden is a uh, temple, but so is all of creation. And the garden is like the beginning of what man is supposed to uh do in terms of his dominion mandate so the mm. dominion mandate was to subdue the earth meaning he was supposed to take that microcosm of god's temple in the garden and extend it to global proportions so that the whole earth would be filled with the earth with the glory of god as the water waters covered the sea so there's an eschatology already built into creation from the very beginning dependent upon adam's successful passing of the test mm. the covenant of works uh, if he passed that test of the covenant of works, uh, then he would have been confirmed in righteousness, and then he would have begun the process of subduing the earth. There would be this whole process of uh, procreating, reproducing, and you know having many children. Then they would have children, so there would be this creation of a humanity. This whole humanity then would populate and fill the earth, and then at some point, uh, we don't know how long it would take, but you know, many generations later, eventually God would take the whole thing and glorify it to become the cosmic temple. Huh. And heaven would be, uh, heaven and earth would be one. So remember, the very beginning of Genesis is in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And that sets up this idea of the two, uh, the two registers. My website is called the upper register. It comes from this idea that Meredith Klein talked about, which is that heaven is the upper register, earth is the lower register. When it says Earth in Genesis 1-1, don't just think of the planet Earth. Yes. Think of the entire visible creation that we now know. We know this from Colossians 1-16, where Paul 
explicitly comments on Genesis 1-1 and interprets heaven as being the invisible realm and the earth as being the visible realm. Okay. So we've already set up that there's an invisible and, an, and a visible realm. Currently, they're separated, right? At least we don't see the invisible realm. But the whole point is that the eschatological goal that we have now in Christ, but the ultimate goal, the goal that was originally set before Adam, before the fall, if he had passed the test of the covenant of works, was that he would achieve that. Of course, it wouldn't be his own works doing it. It would have been God doing it, but he would have prepared the way for it by building the scaffolding, as it were, and then God would come and, and fill the, uh, the earth with his glory. So that picture that you were just talking about that Isaiah saw in Isaiah 6, that is that is heaven. That's the upper register. That's the invisible realm. That's Genesis 1-1a. In the beginning, God created the heavens. Mm. That is heaven. It's God's dwelling place. And uh, there's the ultimate goal is that heaven and earth would be one and that there would so, be no separation. So, so some people in the their reading of that text will say the heavens and the earth is one thing. It's speaking about you know, space, sky, and then kind of, you know, planets or something like that. What you're saying is, no, the heavens or the heaven there is talking about God's dwelling place, and then the earth is the physical kind of stuff that we're interacting right. with. Right. That's that's how I take it. I know that it's debated, but I, t I base it on Colossians 1.16. But, but also, I think that you're right. that So the, the Hebrew word shemayim, can be translated different ways. So there are places, even in Genesis chapter one, where it refers to the visible heavens, which we would call the sky, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And in fact, I think the NIV probably even translates it that way probably. <laughs> as the sky. <laughs> um, but do they translate it that way in verse one? Do they say in the beginning, God created the sky and the earth? I doubt it because in verse one, it's clearly talking about something greater. So throughout the text, there's this two-level idea. I mean, you even see this just right there with the image of God in man, right? Is man the image of God? Yes. Does that mean that God is not God? So no, there's like these two levels, right? There's God yeah. and there's the image of God. There's heaven and then there's the visible heaven. There's there's something greater and then there's something that like is a replica of it. Well, I suppose um, that, you, that would be in support of the actually your, your argument that there's these parallels yeah. going on everywhere. Yeah. Yeah, um, and what we're saying is that's that applies to the days themselves. So going back to our whole issue here of how do we interpret the days of creation, the framework view is saying that this idea of the two levels, the upper and the lower register, applies to the days as well, and mm -hmm. that the days are belong to the upper register. And how do we know that? How do we know it's heaven time, not earth time? Because God himself rested on the seventh day. And is the seventh day an ordinary solar day? No, it's God enthroned in his eschatological <laughs> yeah. Sabbath rest. Are you right? And that day goes on forever. Psalm 95 says, today, if you will hear my voice, you can enter into my rest. Hebrews 4 says the day is still waiting for us to enter into. And Christ has already brought us into it. So the, sab the seventh day of creation is obviously an upper register day. Well, if the seventh day is an upper register day, you can't take the first six days and put them down on the earth because it's all one big picture. Uh -huh. Six plus one. <laughs> yeah. Um, so one of the arguments that younger creationists will make is that, look, uh, you you get at the end of each day, there's evening, right? There's morning and evening and, and right. so first day, second day. So right. literally, what would you they what would you say? 
And what would the framework view say is the function of that? Is it just giving us a chron- Okay, God just finished doing this stuff first day. And then God finished doing this other stuff second day. Or is there some kind of other function with it? Because you're talking about parallelism quite a bit here. Yeah. So how do we make sense of that? Yeah, so I, I would say that it is literary. It's figurative. It's not literal when it, got, when it says there was evening and there was morning. But it's also literal in this sense that all of our language about God is analogical, which mm. means that it has a literal reference, but it's being applied analogically to God. Right. So when we say that um, uh, God rested on the seventh day, is that a literal statement or an analogical statement? Well, it is literal, right? Because it's saying that the Sabbath rest is a day of rest, Mm -hmm. but it's also analogical because God's rest and man's rest are not the same. God, God is the infinite, eternal, impassable, immutable God. He doesn't need to rest. So, it's a metaphor. It's an analogical way of speaking about God using, and it's founded upon the basic idea that man is made in the image of God. It's founded upon this basic idea that the upper register is the archetype and the lower register is the ectype. The lower mm-hmm. register is the reflection. It's the, it's the visible manifestation of the heavenly. But then because that's true, we can use the lower register to describe the upper. That's why think about this, for example, in all the, not all, but in many of the pictures of God on his throne in the Bible, like in Ezekiel and Revelation, there's a rainbow hmm. around the throne. Now, is that literally the case? Is there literally a rainbow around God's throne? Like a rainbow made yeah. out of, you know, water vapor and the light refracting? On? No, right? It's, an, it's a way of trying to understand. Or like it talks about clouds, the clouds of heaven. So are there literally vapor clouds in heaven? No, we're using lower register experience, clouds and rainbows, to try to analogically understand God and the upper register. Yeah, I suppose you see the same thing when it comes to temple language. Like in Revelation, when the heavenly temple or the heavenly city, Jerusalem, uh, descends. And you're also seeing yeah. in, in Ezekiel, you see this reflection of the earthly temple yeah. with the heavenly temple. Or you could say the exactly. other way around, right? The heavenly t- exactly. earthly temple is a representation of exactly. the heavenly uh, exactly. temple. Um, and if that's true just throughout scripture, then it's in the beginning you get this as well. You get the same. In, in other words, what you're saying is Genesis 1, the creation account, is what establishes the entire rest of the scripture's analogical language about God. Yeah, uh, that seems <laughs> that seems pretty clear, right? I mean, you you yeah, um, that seems clear in in a number of senses for me. Uh, yeah. whether it's God being the king and creator, the creator or yep. sustainer, which which was counter, it was a revolutionary idea. It was counterintuitive to them culturally, you could say, because they all believed in these local gods, right. of you know, cities and nation states or something like that. And then there is this, there, there's God who is the creator of the heavens and the earth, which you get an introduction to. Uh, I like when Melchizedek is introduced. It's like, he's a priest of who? Yeah. It's like, oh, the, the one who created the heavens and the earth, right? The Most God, high God, creator, creator of heaven and yeah. earth. Yeah. And, uh, and in their culture, that this would have been kind of, what? This doesn't make sense. We, we all have local gods. And who's this other one? I liked, I was reading a text with a bunch of my students today. Um, they are, they are, um, 
they range from fourth to ninth grade. And um, there's a statement in Exodus where God says, though, though the earth is mine and the fullness of it, mm-hmm. I will rest in this place and you will be my mm-hmm. people and you will be my mm-hmm. nation, you know, a nation of priests. It's in Exodus 19 uh, yeah. or no, 19 or 20. Um, but it's very interesting. No, I think it's Exodus 19. Yeah. Yeah. And I was explaining to them, I was saying, this is, this is a revolutionary idea that this deity mm-hmm. of Israel, which is not a big country. It's not a powerful country, right? Like it right. makes this claim. Everything is mine. Right. It's trying to explain to them how that was kind of countercultural to them. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and Genesis seems to be this very countercultural, or let's just say Genesis one and two is this very countercultural thing. Yeah. Where even okay, so we wanted to comment on humanity, the creation of humanity as opposed maybe the creation of humanity or the existence of humanity as opposed to some of these other uh cultures and views and religions and how Genesis is, is sort of opposed to that, I guess. Um I'm not sure what you're getting at. Okay. Genesis is opposed so, to what? So in, in Genesis, we get the, in Genesis six, we get this very clear thing of God creating humans in his image and in his likeness. Uh-huh. Right. How is that maybe counter to other cultures and the way they would have viewed humanity and their function within it? Are you talking about the ancient Near Eastern myths yeah. and how they, they view the relationship between the gods and humans? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So there is, uh, I mean, there are different um, creation myths out there, a new Elish and different ones. And it seems like most of them kind of have this idea that the purpose of humans is to minister to the gods and to like, you know, feed them and stuff, offer sacrifices. (laughs) And uh, they're just very, um, yeah, it's, it's a very strange understanding of why the gods exist and why humans exist. The gods are also creatures in a way the gods are not they don't transcend the creation the way we think of in in our you know judeo-christian biblical view we have this clear distinction between the creator and the creation and god is eternal and he doesn't there was never a time when he didn't exist he was always there and then he created the creation out of nothing whereas the um these ancient Near Eastern myths view the gods as being creatures. They're just like bigger creatures. They're yeah. like, you know, they're just like, uh, I don't know. They're like the Avengers or something, you know, in the MCU. They're just like these big, yeah. you, you know, they're like Thor or something. But they're still creatures. They're still, they can be hurt. They can be harmed. They had a time when they didn't exist. They came in. In fact, the creation stories of the ancient Near Eastern uh, milieu around Israel at that time they were not really creation accounts. We call them creation accounts because they remind us of Genesis 1, but they weren't really creation accounts. They, In their view, creation or matter is eternal. What those accounts are is actually uh, theogonies. Theogony means the birth of the gods. So where did the gods come from? So they're actually accounts describing the origin of the gods. Well, you don't get that in Genesis uh, 1. <laughs> No, and Genesis 1 doesn't, it's just the opposite. Genesis 1 says, in the beginning, God, he's there before, and then he creates. And it's just a, a, ma- a majestic statement of God's absolute authority as the creator. I suppose it's, so. it's, it's phenomenal to us as a modern reader where we've learned this stuff. I mean, 
we don't we don't have uh, this cultural understanding or perspective that gods have origins and births and stuff like that. Many of us obviously grew up in by the influence of Christianity, um, and so some sort of a biblical understanding of things. And then just that one line in the beginning, God in Genesis yeah. one, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Is so yeah. countercultural to them, where it's like, totally. I, yeah. I guess they would have been anticipating a creation story for God as well, and it just doesn't exist, right? Um, which implies, I guess, eternality for God, right? Um, and then the other issue, which goes back to your initial question, is different views of humanity. So mm -hmm. obviously, uh, in Genesis one, the main difference is that man is made in the image of God, which is very different from those ancient Near Eastern cultures. So, so man, you meant generally, but uh, just to specify here, and I think this is important, that men and women are made in yes, the image of God. Yes, I was using the yes. generic man, <laughs> yeah. humanity, mankind. Uh, Which again establishes a theological view about yeah. all of humanity, not just males, not females, right. but both are made in the image of God. And therefore, both right. are of value. Both are called to represent God on the earth in this dominion, subduing kind of stuff that's happening. Right. Yeah. Uh, do you, you you use dominion and uh, like oh Adam's call was to subdue, and I don't know whether this was intentional. So um, you said that was the case. Uh, I know there are individuals who who take a belief that that dominion to you know be fruitful and multiply and so on and so forth um ends with genesis essentially like people have accomplished that by the end of genesis um or at least some point in genesis or would you take a view that no this is still a call on humanity it's a general call on humanity we are still to operate in this or we are at least by nature operating in this whether we like it or not okay well this is a whole other debate if you want to get into yeah. that uh but basically my view of it's called the cultural mandate uh the mandate given to to man i mean man generically adam and eve in the garden to exercise dominion to fill the earth to multiply fill the earth exercise dominion and subdue um my view of that cultural mandate is that it uh has not been totally um brought to an end yet it still exists in some form today i mean we see it right i mean Everybody out there in the world, not just Christians, are having children, right? So <laughs> it's happening, right? Children, having children, technology, building things, that's all part of the cultural mandate. However, it is significantly altered after the fall. Uh -huh. Because of the fall, the cultural mandate is no longer capable of being completely fulfilled by man. It is now under a curse and the main thing that frustrates the cultural mandate from being fulfilled is death. Death is the ultimate frustrator of the dominion mandate, of the cultural mandate. Because as try as, try as we might, you know, to try to build all these things and do all this stuff and have children, and it's, it's all frustrated by death and by sin. So the cultural mandate still exists, and, and we as Christians and even, even non-Christians are still supposed to do it. But we no longer have the hope that it will lead to that eschatological consummation that I talked about mm. where heaven and earth become one and the cosmic temple is brought about that, that cannot be achieved by mankind after the fall. 
It is, however, being achieved by Christ as the second Adam. And he is the one who is being fruitful and multiplying and multiplying by saving all of the elect wow. and bringing them to saving faith in himself. And then ultimately he will fulfill it when he uh, creates the glorified new humanity at the last day on the day of the resurrection. And that's when the dominion mandate will be fulfilled. But it's being fulfilled by Christ, not by us. Um, is it in somehow a partnership? Do we partner with Christ in this? I mean, like I'm, I'm thinking about, uh, I know we're going a little off topic. I'll bring it back. But... Do you partner with Christ in effectual calling? <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm, I, I, so I mean in the sense, I mean in the sense of like evangelism, like in, in more practical sense, like, okay, Christ is saving folks so on and so forth. But do, do we, um, yeah. Cause I'm, I'm thinking like how this stuff could kind of connect with say, or in some people's minds with like post-millennialism yeah uh you know we're we're walking in in the way of christ and and i mean some people might even be uh, a theonomous view or something like that um yeah i don't hold to that i yeah and i don't like that language of partnering with christ it okay. is true that that the exalted christ ephesians 4 has given gifts to the church and he is using the church to bear witness to himself and he uses the that means to call the elect and to bring them to saving faith but it's not partnering it's just christ using his yeah church to do it so <laughs> yeah so the the, the, uh, the reason why i didn't say christ uh christ partnering with us like i would be really uncomfortable with christ partnering with us uh, yeah. i mean he's already doing his work and that, that's why i use that but yeah um okay let's bring it back here um i mean you mentioned this but someone's asking uh when do you think dinosaurs lived uh, according to you uh, the individual is saying, Alpha Beta is saying this, I say that dinosaurs slash dragons lived from creation to the Great Flood. Um, so I guess the question is... This, when, essentially in your view, I mean, you said you, you held uh, to more of an old earth kind of scientific... Uh, I mean, I yeah. don't want to say old earth because that implies a bunch of stuff. Mm -hmm. But you believe in what the scientific data says about you know, yeah, animal existence um, and stuff like that. Yeah, I, I do believe in the fossil record. I don't think it's a lie. I don't think it's um, that God gave the appearance of age or gave the appearance that these animals existed. I think that the fossil record shows that these creatures did exist at some point. Um, there really are T-Rex bones out there and they're real. And that means that there was a T-Rex creature living out there at some point. Now, how do we harmonize that with Genesis? In other words, where would we locate that in Genesis? Um, that's hard. I don't, I don't know the answer to that. Um, I'm, I'm a little bit reluctant to get exactly, to give a definitive answer because I don't know enough about the fossil record to be able to answer that. Sure. Um, but well, I think that if you were, if you are a geologist or an archaeologist, I think, and you're a Christian, I think that you're free to be able to deal with that data of the actual fossils, and then to not see a conflict with Scripture because the Scripture doesn't set forth a specific timeline of how the fossil record has to be interpreted. Yeah, so I suppose the the important part here is saying that whether is it is the intent of 
let's just say Genesis 1 to whatever, um, 1 to 3, uh, to give you some kind of uh, data like that or is trying to convince you of anything right. like that, of the animals and stuff like that. Right. Yeah. Okay. Um, uh, what, one question that people might have, though, that's, that can be more directly addressed is instead of trying to ask the question, where do the dinosaurs fit in Genesis? I don't know. But I can say this. Um, I don't think that Genesis requires us to believe that there was no such thing as animal death or animal predation before the fall. Okay. So that would allow for the possibility that, you know, somewhere in day, you know, five or six or something, there might have been, you know, animals living and dying and uh, engaging in the ordinary process of predation and so on. Uh, the, the, I know that that's sometimes viewed as being theologically suspect in some people's minds because of the fact that they think that Romans 5 teaches that death entered the world because of sin or because of Adam's mm -hmm. sin. Um, but that's kind of a, a um, misunderstanding of the word death. So when the Bible talks about death, especially in Romans 5, it's talking about death as the wages of sin. It's talking about a penal act of God judging mankind mm -hmm. because of sin. And that's not the same thing as let's say a cell dying or, I mean, or people who don't like the idea. Yeah. People don't like the idea of animal death before the fall or somehow okay with plants dying before the fall. So that could then at least open up the idea that there is such a thing as death in a different sense than the penal consequence of sin. Right. Correct. So obviously death in that sense, the penal consequence of sin only occurs after Adam's sin, after he breaks the covenant of works. Um, and so Adam was not condemned to death before that happened, but death in the animal kingdom or in the plant kingdom or in the microbiological kingdom of bacteria and so on. I don't think that that's a different category of death. And I don't think that the Bible requires us to deny that. Okay. So. Okay. So sad, a uh, good friend of mine asks if the various things created on the six days are not literal what is their value in the text? What do they represent? I guess this is essentially saying, so what's the point of writing all this down? Like what is the author trying to do here? Well, I think I need to clarify uh, that that statement is not what I believe. Uh -huh. So re read the question again. If so the various things... If the various things created on the six days are not literal, right. what so is I don't their value that. in the text? I don't believe that. I don't believe that the various things that are created are not literal. I think that all of the fiat fulfill, there's eight fiat fulfillments, right? God said, let there be, and then there was. I think that those fiats are literal. Mm -hmm. They're referring to literal acts of divine creation that God did. The, the, the part that's Figurative, the part that's not literal is the framework of the days that provides the literary structure for presenting those events. Yeah. So, for example, um, in the Gospels, uh, there are two accounts of the temptation of Jesus, one in Matthew and one in Luke. And those two accounts are historical. They're narrating events that actually occurred, but they narrate the temptations in two different orders. If you compare Matthew with Luke... Uh, I think the second and the third temptation are flipped. Hmm. So does that mean that 
the, that those temptations did that, that Satan didn't actually tempt him with those temptations. No, he literally did. But the account of it is in a literary form that changes the sequence, but it's not necessarily denying it's, it isn't denying the historicity yeah. of the event. So the same thing with Genesis one, I would say that the account is not in a chronological order. It's given in this framework of the six days, picturing God as a workman going about his work for six days and then resting on the seventh because of the analogy between man being made in the image of God and God being the archetype. That's what's non-literal. That's what's figurative, not the creation events themselves. Okay. Um, so the, the, I guess the order, uh, he asks a follow-up, uh, does he believe the order given of these things created? And that's where the conversation is. Right. So I, I don't think that the order is, is uh, sequential. Yeah. So let me put this and, up. And, so just in case some people didn't see it in, in regards to the parallels here um, with the, th the two sets of threes, essentially. Um, you get day one, uh, where there's light separate from darkness and then luminaries is its parallel in four. And then sky and seas and sea creatures and wing creatures and then dry land and vegetation and then you get land animals and, and man and then God rests on the seventh day. And one of the things we spoke about, and I'm not sure whether Saad was here for that or not, but is that there's a filling of these things happening. So it's, you know, the... The things are created and then their rulers are created in its parallel, right? So man and the land animals uh, would be ruling over the vegetation and the land. Luminaries rule over light and darkness. And ultimately, God rules over all of it. Right. So the main point is theological, uh, you would say. Yeah. This happens a lot in the Bible where you have... A historical account that is narrating historical events but the chronological or time information is not sequential um you'll, you'll find in a certain narrative sometimes where that and this happens even in ordinary human conversation if you're telling a story sometimes you have to tell a story and you have to kind of jump ahead a little bit and then you back up and say but let me go back a few days before to get the context so that happens a lot in the bible um, yeah. so sometimes you have telescoping where a complex of events that in reality took, you know, a process of time and multiple events gets collapsed into one overarching simplified version of it. You know, like sometimes we think about the exile, the exile of, of, uh, Israel is a major event in the Bible. It's talked about a lot, but if you really look, if you really drill down into the actual historical sequence, it's like. A long drawn out process first you have the southern or first you have the northern kingdom and then you have the southern kingdom even the southern kingdom it's like there's these different levels of it where yeah. like there's an initial invasion and then the king of assyria goes away, or babylon goes away for a while and then he comes back and it's like it really took more time it wasn't just like one event that's you know? true yeah took, so, yeah there's multiple exiles actually as well yeah. Yeah. there's like the initial group of the aristocrats and kind of the ruling families yeah. that are exiled yeah. and then kind of the the, the societal uh, ordinaries after that and like exactly. there's a depopulating that happens in right. steps it's not a one one sort of thing right i mean we see it right here in genesis genesis one and two uh uh talks about the creation of of man right and it, it narrates it twice yeah in genesis one 
on the sixth day, God created man in his own image, male and female. But then you go to chapter two, and now it's going to go back to day six and zero in on it and talk about, well, first there was Adam, and then Adam went into a deep sleep. Then God formed Eve, giving us like a zoomed in, more close up picture of it. And we realized that it actually was more complicated than just simply, oh, God created Adam and Eve out of nothing. So, uh -huh. which I guess the Bible leads us to yeah. another question here. Um, does Lee believe that Adam and Eve are the father and mother of all humans, or does he believe other humans were created alongside them? For example, was Cain's wife a daughter of Adam and Eve? That's a really good question. Uh, the Bible does not explicitly answer that question, so we have to use our sanctified imagination to fill in the gaps. I like that. Uh, <laughs> and I think that it's most likely that... Uh, the, the the filling in of the gaps that traditionally has been done by most theologians is that um, incest was not in itself a sinful thing at this early stage in the life of humanity. And so that there probably was brothers and sisters um, getting married, you know, and you had to start the human family somehow. I think that's a legitimate assumption. But, I mean, it is possible that God did also create some other human beings that we are not told about. That's possible. You can't I mean, rule that out. So. Would it be a possibility, I guess? And maybe to, I'm, I'm thinking on my feet here. So if I say something really, really weird, throw it in the yeah. trash can. <laughs> I mean, Lee can do that pretty simply. But if, if you're watching, just make sure you can throw stuff in the trash can that I'm saying. Um, uh, this, this idea of representation, right? Yeah. Uh, you get it in there. Like, humans are God's representatives. Um, in this case, Adam and Eve are God's representatives. And uh, whether, because there is a view, right, that God created this population of humans and then selected two of them. We know them as Adam and Eve. Um, and then set them to be the, the, I guess, functional kind of priests or something like that of him. Uh, and their actions reflected all of humanity at that point. So I guess this easily solves the question of Cain's, you know, wife and and other issues yeah. that that happen um, in in these early accounts. Yeah, and, and this also relates to the whole question of could God have used uh, providentially guided evolutionary processes to create the first humans, uh, so that Adam and Eve actually are descendants from uh, pre-human biological organisms that looked human at least physically you know but they didn't have souls yet is that possible uh yeah i think it is possible and there are many who try to harmonize uh science in the bible that way i don't think that's it's wise to go down that path um and i'm very concerned about going down that path because we want to maintain uh something very important theologically which is romans 5 that god established adam to be both the natural and the covenantal head of the human mm. race. And that all mankind descending from Adam by ordinary generation are represented by him and are therefore um, under his uh, under his spiritual authority in a sense. And so the guilt of Adam's sin is imputed to all of the human race uh, because of Adam's sin. And But that's something that God ordained you know, it wasn't just that it was automatic that just because uh, just because he's the natural head of the human race doesn't automatically mean that 
uh, he's also the covenantal head. But so God had to ordain that. But there's a fittingness between those two things. It's fitting that God would use this person who's the natural head of the human race mm -hmm. to also be the covenant head of the human race. And you're saying this, so, that it has serious theological significance because of Christ being the second Adam, right? You, you, right, need, exactly. you need to reconcile this kind of in its historical and, setting. Well, that's that's a big part of it is you have to have, if you don't have the first Adam, you're not going to have the second Adam and his work. Um, but there's another issue too, which is uh, if you don't have a historical Adam who is the covenant head of the human race, then you don't have a historical event of the fall. Uh -huh. And then you don't have, you can't answer the question of why did death in that theological sense of death as the wages of sin, how did death enter the world and where did death come from? So there's some pretty big issues in terms of systematic theology that hinge upon getting this right. Now, it is possible. It is possible. I have heard of people who have tried to come up with a scenario that allows them, and, and they think in their minds, it allows them to harmonize the Bible with um, evolutionary views of the origin of man by saying this, that, um, that, okay, so God used evolutionary processes to create a population of pre-human pre hominids. And then at some point, he then took that population, let's say it's like, let's say it was a tribe of like a thousand people, and then he implanted souls in them. Mm -hmm. And then Adam was sort of like the head of the tribe. And then God or, ordained him to be the covenant head of the tribe. And then Adam sinned. And then because he's the head of that tribe, then, you know, they're all now condemned because of Adam's sin. It is sort of possible to come up with that scenario. And that sort of seems to protect the idea of the historicity of Adam, the historicity of the fall and all that. But the problem is that it doesn't really satisfy science because what do you do about um, Eve? Like where did Eve come from? You know, so obviously you would have to say that she's not really related to Adam. You would have to deny the literalness of the account in Genesis 2 about Eve being made out of Adam's rib. There's just a lot of problems, and pretty soon you start going down this path, and before you know it, you've denied the historicity of the fall and the two-atom construct of um, theology and so on. So it's I think it's safer to just not go down that path, personally. Yeah. Yeah, so. I, I think there's a number of things that we have to be very careful because of their theological significance to maintain. Yeah. And then there's some other room. Um, I think, where we can work with it. But I ultimately come down to it, and this is why the framework view um, is appealing to me, because I think it's so true to the text. Like, you don't need anything else beyond the text. Right. You can see it within the text. And we were earlier talking before we went on live, uh, a view that I'm more inclined to believe, with it, which is that um, Genesis 1 and 2 is a polemic against ancient uh, religions. Yeah. And uh, we're talking about how that's whether that's explicit or implicit. Even that view, like I uh, will admit all day that you have to know the cultural background and kind of make an argument for why this would be some kind of a implicit view. I think it would take a lot of work to argue that it is an explicit view. Um, like this is actually the teaching of the text. I think you're gonna. There's a lot more to be said about that if if you can do it. Um, but with the framework view, it's just like it's it's so 
it's so like neat <laughs> it's the best way i can put it like textually neat right yeah. it's like wait wait once you see it you can't unsee it yeah and everyone i've explained this to when they see it they're kind of like i've read the bible for a very long time and i can't believe i haven't seen <laughs> kind of this right. this relation here yeah. um and it, it's it's wonderful it's it, it's a really beautiful view uh that i think answers a bunch of questions that we might or we maybe even taught to think in that way yeah um okay this let, let someone's asking a question. i'm gonna ask you some greek questions because you've done work in that and then we'll end okay. because we're coming up on an hour i would really thank you for this this has been really fun i i think we'll have more conversations on some of the righteousness stuff i think that's that's very interesting Sure, we could do a, an um, episode on that. So, Dr. Charles the Irons, I once heard an apostle um, claim that God making a man and a woman means we're both male and female. Your thoughts? What? So, <laughs> I, I guess the can't... idea here is that Adam is generally uh -huh. used as a reference. Uh -huh. um, and then yeah. there is the maleness and femaleness which is really strange but maleness and femaleness of every individual huh um so are they basing this on genesis 1 26 or seems like it yeah that god okay. made adam in his image and his likeness to read Genesis 1 26 as then God said, let us make mankind or that's Adam there, uh, make man in our image and our likeness so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds of the sky over the livestock and over all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move around the ground. And then verse 27, God created man in his own image in the image of God. He created him male and female. He created them. Um, and so they're saying that each individual is both male and female. That that's my reading. I mean, this this comment that's been made that that seems to me. Okay. Mine. Yeah, I don't see that in the text. That sounds like it would be somebody trying to do some sort of gender non-binary <laughs> argument or something. <laughs> yeah, the, the thing uh, is, I guess you can you if you had verse twenty-six alone, maybe you can make uh, that argument some somehow. Mankind yeah. in our image. I don't know. I'm very sure because I think 27 very easily clarifies it. Yeah. Made him and yeah. them is, is plural, I guess. There. I mean, it is true that the Hebrew word Adam, um, in those verses, is being used in a generic sense to refer to, you know, like humanity or mankind or something like that, to include both male and female. But I don't think you can leap from there to the idea that each individual is male and female. I mean, that's just biologically so, incorrect. Yeah. I mean, if yeah. you mean like masculine and feminine, I think those are completely yeah. different kind of categories to go into. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think it's just biologically be silly. Yeah. And, okay, and you, so, you should also, well, another thing too, I think that would help with this is, remember I mentioned before, you have these two accounts of the creation of man, Genesis 1, but then Genesis 2. We get to Genesis two. You kind of have this zeroing in and you know, really focusing on the issue of the creation of man, and it's very clear that you know there's this male female distinction there. Uh, you know, God says, you know, um, it's not good for man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Uh, Ezer Kenegdo in Hebrew, 
like an, uh, an Ezra, a helper who is connecto, who is like opposite to him, but yet also complementary to him. And I think that that clearly brings out the idea of gender complementarity, that the two are not the same, male and female are distinct. They're both equally in the image of God, Genesis 1, 26 and 27, mm -hmm. but yet there is still a distinction between those two, uh, helper suitable for him. You know, so I think you, when you look at that account there in Genesis 2, 18 to 25, and you have the first marriage, so to speak, you know, where God brings the woman to the man mm -hmm. and he says, wow, this is Isha, which is related to the Hebrew word for Ish. Ish is man in the other sense. So there's there's Adam, which is the generic man in chapter one. But then there's Ish, which is the masculine man, um, male man. Mm -hmm. And then the woman is called Isha, which is really close to the word ish but it has that ah at the end there to show that there's a distinction yeah. <laughs> between the two even a the words are very close yeah. with each other with yeah. a little slight distinction yeah. it's beautiful so very and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed so and they're joined together you know so this whole thing it's very clear that there's a distinction between male and female and it, there's no implication at all that adam has a female side to him and that eve has a male side to her or something like that it's not there in yeah. the text so okay let me let me ask you a couple of greek questions and i'll let you go uh there is a, a like i said there, there's a cult that i've been introduced to as of yesterday or it's a it's it's i was like well you know every time i hear about cult i'm like man i hope they have like five followers right like i hope they have none by the way but if, if there's gonna be anything it's like but it seems to be pretty big and they claim to be a church and a movement and all this okay. stuff and they are from my reading on their website, still Trinitarian, still teaching that Jesus brings about salvation, things of that sort. But there's some very interestingly weird teaching going on. And uh, so one of the things has to do with some Greek words. Okay. So this the, the main teacher in, in this movement teaches that the word sperma in Greek uh, is the same thing as sperm in the english because that's a word i guess translated as seed correct mm -hmm. yeah um and the thing is that he goes into these very strange areas of like spiritual intercourse and procreation and things of that sort because he goes wow. on to talk about koinonia meaning intercourse wow and um and then there's another one where he says the word bishop, which in Greek is episkopos, um, is from the Hebrew L, meaning God ones. And so like the leaders in the church are kind of God ones. Uh, can you comment on those three Greek words? Oh, my. <laughs> possible. <laughs> okay. Um, well, let's take the last one first. Sure. Uh, that's ridiculous. Uh the the greek word for uh elder is presbyteros and has nothing to do with uh the word el or elohim in mm. hebrew um, the greek word for episkopos which is also translated as bishop or overseer has nothing to do with el or elohim in hebrew so we can set that one aside that one's just Easy nonsense one. um the other two um uh, so Koinonia. Does koinonia ever refer to sex? It's possible that there are there is a place somewhere in in Greek literature where it does. I, I can't think of one off the top of my head. 
Uh, so it's possible. There might even be a case somewhere in the New Testament where it does. I don't know. I can't think of anyone. But I don't think that that's... What would be the root meaning of the word koinonia? Um, it's from the adjective koinos, which means common mm -hmm. or sharing. So koinonia then is the noun of that. It's the act of sharing or the reality of sharing, having something in common. Mm -hmm. So you could see how, yeah, you could, a person who is speaking in Greek, if they wanted to talk about sex as a form of having something in common, yeah, you, you could do that with the Greek word if you wanted to. But here's the thing is that this guy is doing theology based on words. And yeah. the thing is, is that words never have meaning in and of themselves apart from a context in which they're being used. There's no such thing as a word having some theological meaning just because it's a word. <laughs> Actually, this is a common thing that you see a lot in theology, like uh, C.S. Lewis's Four Loves, you know, where he talks about philos and eros and all that mm -hmm. stuff. Uh, it's really just a bad way of handling uh, Greek and Hebrew words. Greek and Hebrew words are just like English words or any other language where they're tools that are used in sentences. And so you have to look at the sentence and the whole context to figure out what the word means in that context. Now, it's true that words have a certain range of meaning. Like it's not, it's not as though every word can mean anything at all. They have a certain range of meaning. But that range of meaning is going to be determined by the context. And so you can't do theology based on meanings of words. You have to do theology based on propositions in the text, based upon what the Bible teaches with yeah, whole I mean, sentences. And a good example of this, I guess, I guess a good example of this would be the word theos. Yeah. Right, God, uh, which, which could mean God in the way we understand God or gods, uh, mm -hmm. right, in, in the yeah. way of... Yeah lesser deities or believed to be so or even right. it could even be i guess applied to human beings functioning in some kind of a weirdly authoritative sense yeah. uh, where they don't have divine properties you could say but they're still functioning in this you right. are like gods uh, i think right. i think there's the old testament passage where i will make you like a god among them uh, where right. god, god says that to moses um yeah i mean it's the thing is that it sounds intriguing i mean usually cults when they come up with this stuff they kind of sound intriguing it's like i got this yeah. secret knowledge and nobody's able to be you know nobody's discovered this in the last two thousand right. years and i had a revelation right right kind, kind of stuff uh, what about the word yeah. sperma um the word sperma is uh it has a range of meanings um now can it sometimes be used to refer to sperm like the literal male zygote. Is that what you mean? Or not zygote. Um, what's the word for it? Uh, a zygote is after it's yeah. been fertilized. Mm -hmm. um, what is the word for the... Like semen? Is that what you're thinking? Well, semen yeah. would be like yeah. the whole fluid that includes sperm within it. But I'm talking about the actual organism that's like wiggles around, you know? Um, there's a term for it. I can't remember the term. To refer to a... Um, half of the DNA that would then mm -hmm. become for, you know, cause fertilization. Anyway, I forget. It. I don't know my biology well enough. Can, can the word sperma in Greek refer to that? Well, here's the problem is that our understanding of what a sperm cell is, is pretty modern. I mean, it's like 
19th, 20th century, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, did the ancient Greeks, did the ancient writers of the Bible, did they know about that concept? They might have known about the fluid and they might have had some intuitive sense that the fluid can cause pregnancy, but I don't think that they knew what a sperm cell was. So yeah. it seems very unlikely that they would have that meaning. Now, in modern Greek, maybe they do. I don't know. Yeah, so this would be like a concept of seed being used in the sense of the procreation to anything. Yeah. Whether it's a fruit tree or a human being yeah. or an animal, it would be, well, the seed of such and such. Yeah, and th- so. this is why you were saying context and sentences matter because right. the word seed could be used in all sorts of ways. It is used all sorts of ways in the Bible, or at least yeah. in our English Bibles. Uh, as it well. can be the word sperma in the Bible can refer to the seed of a fruit tree, you know, like a seed that, like an apple seed, you know. Yeah. It can refer to the male seed, which they didn't think of as being little sperm cells. They thought of it as being something that the man, you know, implants into the woman, and that's what causes pregnancy. Uh, so they could view that as being seed, although technically they didn't like to use that word to refer to that. They like to use other words like um, your fountain or your, oh, you know, things like that. Uh, there are some interesting passages that talk about your fountains, like in the Proverbs, you know, don't just let your fountain go anywhere, you know, <laughs> like get to keep it in. You know, it's it's Control sacred. Yourself. It's special. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, um or water. Sometimes they use the word water to refer to that. Uh, they knew that these were euphemisms. They knew yeah. what they were talking about, but they're using euphemistic language to talk about it. Um, so, but most commonly, most commonly in the Bible and theologically, sperma is used to refer to offspring, which is the result of the process oh, of intercourse, insemination, then the pregnancy, then the birth. That's the most common usage of the word sperma in in Greek. So in, we, we in would see biblical. that translated in our English English Bibles as offspring. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Which so would like in Galatians when it says if you are Abraham if you belong to Christ then you are Abraham's offspring. That's the word sperma. Okay, so w- uh, which Christ the way this guy is using it this would actually so. separate it a lot more when from the way this gentleman seems to be using it in his uh, in his teachings. Cuz he really wants yeah. to establish it as the actual English word for it. We translate yeah. it differently. It's a different understanding. Yeah, this is this is a classic example of so a lot of terms in biology are in, in modern English uh, textbooks of biology, a lot of the terms that we use in biology are from Greek. In fact, most of them are. <laughs> so that 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 modern 20th century it's probably only, I don't know how old it is, but it's, it, it can't be that old. Probably the last 150 years, mm-hmm. my guess. You have to go back. You have to look at the Oxford English Dictionary to find out when the word sperm was first used to refer to the male zygote, not zygote, I keep using that word, the male uh, cell that, you know, implants into the egg. Uh, when did that usage first come about? It's probably pretty recent. And it was biologists who were using Greek because they knew Greek and they used the Greek as their storehouse of terms to create these biological terms, yeah. these biological technical terms. Yeah, and there's quite a bit of, I guess, so, medical literature in Greek, in, from ancient Greece. I mean, lots of philosophers yes. and, and, and yes, there is. folks are trying yeah. to do medicine. <laughs> right, I mean, right. 
Uh, so I, I guess no, and there was. I mean, Aristotle has whole treatises yeah. on on biology and stuff. I mean, it's not entirely correct because he's he, you know, he's pretty early on, but he's trying to figure it out. You know, he's trying At to like. At least they're trying. At least they're trying to figure it out. Yeah. So, yeah. So, but anyway, that's the fallacy of taking a modern English term that is etymologically derived from a Greek term, and then saying, okay, therefore the modern English usage is the meaning of the word in Greek. Yeah. In, in ancient Greek, that's like a total fallacy. That's like a like prime example of eisegesis. Yeah, uh, like it's what not to do. <laughs> it's, it's really yeah, good example. the classic like example is the word dynamite. And di yes. Dynamite is an English word that is derived from the Greek word dunamis, which means power. And so, th so then people who think that they're smart, they'll look at the word dunamis in the Bible in the New Testament, and they'll say, "Oh, it's the dynamite of God" or something, you know. It's like, no, you're completely reading backwards, you know, it's anachronism. You're yes. anachronistically taking a modern usage and then reading it back into the ancient text. So, yeah. Well, that's my questions. I, I want to thank you uh, for, for agreeing to come on here and have this discussion. I, I think it will be fruitful for people who are uh, really trying to dig through the biblical text. And I, I read in the beginning of our of our talk, that introduction you guys have. It's I think everyone I, I try to give credit I think, to all the sides that I've read. Um, all Christians are trying to the best of, of their abilities, read the biblical text and try to understand it for what it says and how it mm -hmm. could be somehow reconciled with our modern discoveries and what's going on. I think the yeah. intention from all the sides is the same. It's like we want to honor the word of God to the best yeah. of our abilities. Now, clearly there's disagreements and clearly there's, you know, you and I both would think some sides do it better than others and and that's fine. I don't think that's in any way to d diminish um, w the intent of this stuff. Uh, but I think, again, I, I think the framework view is, is a really good view. I think that does justice to it. And that's why when I was like, Lee's done work on this, I gotta, I gotta have a conversation with him. <laughs> I think it'd be beneficial, so. Um, yeah. people can purchase the book and read that debate. I mean, as a matter of fact, the cool thing about it is that they get to read the other sides responding to you, um, mm -hmm. saying, Hey, here's why we think he's wrong on this. Mm -hmm. Uh, they can, uh, there's a link in the description that will take them to an article on your website. Um, and then the YouTube stuff, if you want to follow the work and ministry and teachings of Lee. I think there, there's, there's plenty of stuff in the description box you can follow and keep up with him and uh he's he's a really really nice phenomenal guy and so i want to thank you for for joining me here today all right well it's great i enjoyed talking to you as well okay to the rest of everyone thank you god bless you guys i will see you guys later and hopefully we'll have some cool interviews coming up with lee and others so take care god bless you guys